of God's word to Psalm chapter 5. As we consider his word, a brief prayer. Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And satisfy us with your presence, we pray. Amen. Are you sure? It is a question that causes you really to pause and think, doesn't it? And it's often asked at critical moments of decision. Are you sure you should send that email? Are you sure you have your keys? Are you sure you want to make that purchase? But what about when the stakes are a little bit higher? What about in matters of the soul, matters of our worship, or matters of even our thoughts towards God? Are you sure that God hears you when you pray? Are you sure that he even wants to hear from you? Are you confident that he's actually for you and not against you? If God is truly God and all that the scriptures speak of him and his justice, his holiness, his authority, how certain can you be that he actually receives you? Amidst all of these questions, the revelation of God's nature and God's character provides the assurance that we need to answer these questions soundly. And the psalmist teaches us as he lifts up his voice to God with his hands wrapped tightly around the holiness and the justice of God, verses 4 through 6, and yet he has the utmost confidence not only that God hears him, but that God will bless his people. The holiness of God, the justice of God, will either be your greatest comfort or your greatest terror. It will be the thing that causes you to run towards God or flee from him. David was convinced that the justice of God was sure, and yet he drew near to him. Psalm 5 helps us understand how that could ever possibly be. The psalm is broken up essentially into five sections. Notice how David is... Mindful of his need, verses 1 to 3. He's mindful of God's character, verses 4 to 6. He's mindful of God's provision, in verse 7. He's mindful of the danger, in verses 8 and 9. And then he's mindful, lastly, of his defender in the final two verses. Let's walk through this psalm and see how David helps us, by the aid of the Spirit, understand this reality of God's justice and yet our confidence. Let's look back at verses 1 through 3, where we see that he is most certainly mindful of his need. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning, hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You've probably noticed how seasons of trial 
make you acutely aware of the greatness of your inability to provide whatever it is that you lack or that you need in that moment. And seasons of need can actually be tremendously fruitful seasons for the soul. Have you ever noticed that? Where a particular season of need has made you so much more aware of what you actually need. The need was always there. Your dependence was always there. But through this particular circumstance of need, your awareness is raised. Notice how we see the real posture in this need in David's language. The entire stanza is filled with this language of need and the conviction that it's only God who can satisfy. There is this certain unmistakable tone to the language of need, isn't there? He says, give ear, give attention, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. Desperation certainly has a way of sharpening our prayer life. There are mornings and evenings, you all know this, where our tone and our approach, it's more meandering in our prayer, it's more indirect, even really just flat out distracted. But there are also times, aren't there, when our burdens and our concerns weigh upon us to such a degree that it just causes us to focus. We lean in. We even cry out to God. And what we're experiencing is that the awareness of this particular need, it magnifies our real dependence upon God, and our prayers start to reflect this. They just sound different. This is not the routine prayer, verses 1 through 3, just rolling through the checklist, the mind wandering as you go. This prayer is fueled by the awareness of need. The entire posture here is one of desperation. But there's also this perspective in need. Notice who David addresses his prayer to. My king and my God. Titles matter. Who he's addressing matters. Remember back to Psalm 2? One of those introductory psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, David is convinced that Yahweh has set his king, his anointed, on his holy hill. And Psalm 2 tells us that this king rules the nations. Though they rage, that he rules over them with a rod of righteousness. And David is convinced that in his rule, he is also, Psalm 3, a shield. He's a refuge. He's the lifter of my head, this king. And he is the eternal king because his name is Elohim. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He is the God who splits seas apart and delivers his people on dry land. This is who David is looking to, my king and my God. Titles matter. But he's not just a king. He's not just a God. Because David had personalized this, this, doesn't he? my king, my God. There is a personal sweetness. There is a familiar tone to this prayer. It's not the detached, formed rubric that just pray this prayer and it has no heart or no feeling. There is the understanding of of who he's calling out to, my king and my God. But there is the very sweetness of saying, my king, my God. It's not the God that I've heard about from others. It's not the God that my parents worship that I don't really understand. 
This is my king. This is my God. He rules me. He defends me. He's the lifter of my head, for I am his. This is important because this perspective of God being transcendent and yet imminent, meaning that he's high above but that he's drawn near, it's so critical for us in our approach and our worship to God. It's really one of the the themes that runs throughout all of Scripture as God seeks to make himself known to us by his word, that he assures us again and again that he is both high above and yet draws near. And it is great comfort for us in our prayer when we remember this, who it is that we are addressing. He is high above. He is most certainly sufficient. What is too difficult for my God? And yet, he is drawn near. He is a sympathetic high priest who is able to, with compassion, draw near to me. My king, my God. It's essentially what we're taught to pray by Christ in Matthew 6, 9, Pray then like this, our Father who is in heaven, my King and my God who is my King, my God. In saying all of this, I want to draw your attention to the the great importance of this and wondering, do you have a strong sense of your need for God? As you sit here this morning, do you have a strong sense of your need for God? Do your prayers, even your worship this morning, reflect your soul's dependence upon this God? If not, please know that it's not emotion or even the sense of need that gets you access before God. Don't make that mistake. I've really got to feel it, and then I know I can enter into the presence. That's not what gives us access. But the awareness of need, it is nevertheless a good thermometer of our understanding of ourselves and our circumstances. Our spiritual health, our sense of our soul's need for God is reflective of some, in some part of what we understand of ourselves and of this God. What does your sense of need reveal about your soul? David would have us think along these lines. But perhaps you do come this morning with a strong sense of need. You're overwhelmed with this sense of need. If you only knew how great my need is. To you, I would say, please remember this. That God in his kindness and his mercy sometimes makes us more aware of our need in certain seasons to awaken us to the goodness and the sufficiency of himself and the greatness of our weakness. What I am saying is don't waste your sense of need. That God will oftentimes expose you to feel it to a greater degree than you do in different seasons to serve your soul well, so that you would cast your cares upon him. That the greater the sense of your dependence upon him, it magnifies your sense and awe of him, and it shows you just how weak you really are. If dependence is the goal, then weakness is most certainly the advantage. There is the mindfulness of need. But there is also within David the mindfulness of God's character. 
Look back at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It is inescapable. The greater clarity we have of who God is, then the better we see the world for what it is and ourselves as we really are. Who God is helps us make sense of who we are and the world that we live in. I mean, how else are you going to rightfully process and think about, whether it be Supreme Court rulings, conversations with your neighbors, or the myriad of opinions that come across your newsfeed each day? How do you make sense of all that? The revelation of who God is frames up our understanding of everything that surrounds us. And what has the psalmist discovered of God that frames up his understanding of his particular circumstances? You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You hate all evildoers. You destroy all liars. You abhor bloodlust and deceit. You are holy. You're a God of justice. Have you ever paused just to think about the justice of God? Justice is to give what is due. God's justice is the righteousness of his nature wherein he does what righteousness demands. Justice is giving what is owed. And make no mistake, you love justice. We love justice. We hate injustice because no one loves to be taken advantage of. No one wants to see that the scales of justice are somehow tipped against them, favoring someone else unfairly. We cry out against injustice. We, from the youngest age, walk through life protesting. That's not fair. We inherently long for and love the comfort of a world that operates according to this framework of justice, and we scowl anytime we sniff injustice. Should we not expect then that our God would also love justice and righteousness? What if, what if God was inconsistent in his rule of equity? What if he turned away from some evil over here pretending it really didn't exist, while judging evil over here. How comforting would it really be to worship a God who embodies a Greek or a Roman God that could be bribed or ruled seemingly just capriciously, depending upon their mood, punishing some and rewarding others, all based upon some arbitrary standard. That would be maddening. Admit it. We love justice, and righteousness. And what David knows of God is what we all inherently know. 
God hates evil, and he abhors all wickedness. And David seeks God on the basis of his character. David lives in a world much like ours, filled with the abundance of rebellion, and the nations continue to rage against the Lord and his anointed. David, well aware of Job 34:11, for according to the work of a man, God will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Notice, it is upon the foundation of who God is that David draws near. Everything that is proclaimed in verses 4 and 5 and 6 about God is set off by this word, for. The connection between David's need and what David goes on to say is upon the basis of God's justice. Hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. Give attention to my need. For you are a God of justice. He groans because of the lies and the deceit, the crying out, and he cries out to the righteous one. Just as if you and I would want a righteous judge in the courts weighing our case, David comes to God with full awareness, God is holy, God is just. I see the world around me, God, and I am responding in light of who you are. You are just. Now, perhaps you're picking up on the great difficulty, even the irony of this truth. Yeah, I want justice. But go easy on me. Because if I'm really honest, I don't have the cleanest record either. You feel that tension? You wondering how we're going to navigate that one? God is just. He hates all evil. And before you say amen, look in the mirror. But how is it that in full recognition of God's justice and God's holiness, David draws near? How is it that unjust people can petition a righteous God? Verse 7, because he is mindful of God's provision. Look at what it says. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. In much of our own writing, our own logic, we often put the most important point first and then reason down from there. Or we'll put it last and crescendo to that main point and say, this is the most important thing. But oftentimes in Hebrew literature, and especially in the Psalms, the most important point, the central point, the thing that we must lay our hands upon is not first or last, but right in the middle. It's literally the bullseye. Verse 7 is the central theme of this psalm. It is the main point of this psalm. It is the heart of everything that David is praying. The steadfast love of God is the heart of David's prayer. And the recognition of God's steadfast love is not only the central point of this psalm, it is the great heart of the entire Bible. 
This word steadfast love or chesed, it is this Hebrew word, this phrase that is the melody that plays behind really the whole unfolding narrative of redemptive history. It covers our, our entire Bibles. You hear that refrain throughout every book. Chesed is the revelation of who God is. It is the full recognition of his holiness and of our sinfulness. It is a promise of covenant mercy anchored in God's own character. Steadfast love. We're introduced to it back in the book of Exodus. When Moses has this great desire to see God. To dwell with God. I want to know you. And in Exodus 33, 18, we hear Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Then in the next chapter, Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Chesed, steadfast love. I am abounding in steadfast love out of the very nature of who I am. Do you want to know who I am, Moses? I am the Lord, and I will reveal myself to you as the one who has an abundance of mercy, an abundance of steadfast love. It's interesting that the Psalter is filled with 127 references to this steadfast love. The steadfast love of Yahweh. And given that the Psalter is a prayer book or really a book of songs for worship, what is it doing? It's reminding us that the way that we approach God in worship is grounded upon chesed, steadfast love, the mercy of God. Psalm 25, verse 6, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they've been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So what are we saying? Well, we're saying that though evil people are excluded from the presence of God because of their sin, verse 5, it is not true that David is somehow admitted into the presence of God because he's better off than those around him. The psalmist approaches, did you notice he even says he dwells with God on the basis of his steadfast love? What he's saying is that it is only on the basis of God's covenant, God's covenant love towards his people that makes this access even remotely possible. So how presumptuous of us to think that we could enter and behold 
the raw power of God's unmediated holiness. Surely, Lord, I am not the best, but I am, I think, different than the wickedness that surrounds me. Look at my separation from them. You know I believe in absolute truth. You know I believe in the importance of virtue. Look how I voted. God, hear my prayer. It's there in our hearts. David does nothing of the sort. Instead of pleading the case for his own righteousness as grounds for standing before God, he comes on the basis of God's mercy. Are we so arrogant to think that we could come any differently? Listen to what scripture proclaims and ask, what gives me the right to stand before God? What confidence do you have assuring you that you will not be struck down as you stand before his justice? Do you ever think along those lines? I plead with you that you would because that is thinking for the care of your soul. And all of the thoughts that you give towards the care of your body, for the care of your home, for the care of your future, have you given thought to the care of your soul? Are you not aware of your deceit and how you hear the Lord abhors deceitful men? Are you not aware of the wickedness of your wandering thoughts and the persistence of your razor tongue? And do you hear how evil will not dwell with God, for he hates all evil doers? So what assurance do we ever presume to have that we could stand before this holy God in all of his righteousness and justice? The gospel announces that it is only on the account of God's steadfast love and all because of his steadfast love that we approach. The Puritan Thomas Watson spoke of mercy as God's darling attribute, the one that he loved most. He said this because of Micah 7.18, who's a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. This God delights in mercy. It's the exclamation of Peter in his epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All of that is because of his mercy. Or Galatians 1.4, speaking of Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. If the steadfast love of God is at the center of this very psalm, and it's at the center of the very gospel, have you given sufficient thought to just meditate upon the mercy of God? Have you ever done that? Just take the attributes of God and think through them. Turn to the scriptures Find a helpful book that would walk you through and meditate upon who God is. God's mercy, we are told, it's overflowing mercy. So much so that it's infinite. 
God describes his mercy as plenteous, that he is one who is he's rich in mercy, and that he holds in his hands a multitude of mercies that we could not exhaust him. Uh, we read of God having morning mercies. We need those. We read of God having evening mercies. We certainly need those. He surrounds us, we're told, with mercy. It is abundant. You keep reading and you find out that this mercy, it's also eternal. Shouldn't be surprising because God is eternal. He is mercy. The mercy of the Lord, we're told, is from everlasting to everlasting. And in case we ever forget, turn to Psalm 136. You don't have to do it now, but I'm going to tell you 26 times in that psalm, it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. By about time 12, you're thinking, okay, but keep going. Because we are forgetful people, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. As long as he is God, he will be showing mercy. Think about that. The word of God pleads with us this morning. Seek God. Draw near to God. Cast your cares upon him. Confess and repent. Because he's revealed himself as one who is abundant in mercy. David was mindful of his need, mindful of God's character, mindful of God's provision. But let's look at the fourth stanza phrase here. He was also mindful of the danger. Mindful of the danger. Look back at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. What we see here is that David's mindful of the dangers of walking through and just living in a rebellious world. And the prayer is ultimately for guidance to be led now by this righteousness of God in the midst of an unrighteous world. David recognizes he is surrounded by the plotting destruction of deceitful schemers. They are rebelling against Yahweh. The nation's rage, and this rage is often directed at the citizens of this kingdom, followers of Christ. Make no mistake, verse 10, that is a plea for justice. Remember what justice is. It's to give what is due. God's justice is the righteousness of his nature where he does what righteousness demands. To turn a blind eye to wickedness or to downplay this rebellion or that wickedness over there would call into question the holiness and the justice of God. Essentially, his prayer is, do not overlook the evil schemes and rebellion. Deal with rebellion in righteousness. Do you follow? Do you follow what David is getting at? Keep in mind Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. If God has set his king on his holy hill to rule the nations in righteousness, then any opposition to that rule of righteousness is an erosion of the goodness of God for humanity and a mockery of God's good authority. Deal with them in justice. This is a prayer for relief. It's a prayer for righteousness. 
And David prays to be led in this righteousness, ultimately that righteousness would reign. Again, Thomas Watson, if God be just, there will be a day of judgment. Now things are out of course, or as we would say, they've gone mad. Sin is rampant, saints are wronged, and they are often cast in an unrighteous cause. They can meet with no justice here. Justice is turned into wormwood. But there is a day coming when God will set things right. He will do every man justice. He will crown the righteous and condemn the wicked. He has appointed a day. If God be God, he will take vengeance. God has given, a, given men a just law to live by, and they break it. There must be a day for the execution of offenders. A law not executed, it is but like a wooden dagger for show. At the last day, God's sword shall be drawn out against offenders. Then his justice shall be revealed before all the world, for God will judge in righteousness. The wicked shall drink a sea of wrath, but not sip one drop of injustice. At that day shall all mouths be stopped, and God's justice shall fully be vindicated from all the cavils and clamors of unjust men. A sea of wrath, but not one drop of injustice, because God is righteous, because God is holy. But until that day, We live in a world cursed by sin, filled with thorns, and corrupted by all manner of evil. And so we pray with David, lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in your righteousness. Direct my steps according to your word. Let it be a lamp unto my feet. Or again, as Christ taught us to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mindful of the danger. But lastly, let's draw this to a close, as he is most certainly mindful of his defender. Mindful of his defender in verses 11 through 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Much like Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the contrast between really the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, it is quite bright here, quite glaring. Because David turns from those who are going to bear their guilt by falling into their own counsels and being cast out for their transgressions, and then in the next breath towards those who are blessed by God, knowing him to be a refuge, a protector, a a shield. And the scriptures are very clear. There is only two ways. There are only two paths. There are only two peoples. God is holy, and yet not everyone will know his wrath. For there are some who are assured that they will not be struck down by his judgment. How could that be? God becomes your refuge instead of your judge. He spreads his protection over you instead of his wrath. He shields you with his favor instead of exposing you to the full force of his righteous anger. 
How? Well, the wonder of steadfast love proclaims that the righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that God provides. That is the essence of this steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, the great comfort of God's mercy, it's not that he has the love of some jovial grandpa in the sky that just warmly smiles and turns his head at your folly. That is not comforting mercy. The great assurance of every Christian and the confidence that we have to seek him is that his mercy rests upon his justice. The holiness of God demands a just payment for sin, to be satisfied, to not be ignored or downplayed. Mercy is only a comfort to us if justice has actually been satisfied. Have you ever broken a law and not been caught? Have you ever not paid your registration and yet there's a sticker on the back of your car that announces to everyone, you are a lawbreaker? (laughs) Until that is satisfied, you will continue to think about that. I might not get caught. I don't think you can see. But until justice is satisfied, that hangs over your head. It's not simply the fact like, whew, that officer was really nice and he let me off. There is not great comfort in that mercy because you are still a lawbreaker. The mercy of God, the steadfast love of God is not that just God is some jovial, flippant, nice man. It is that he demands justice. Justice is satisfied and in his mercy, he extends the righteousness that he demands to us by faith in Christ. There is such confidence in that sort of mercy. There is such assurance in that sort of declaration. So I groan, I cry out, I plead with God to answer my prayer in all confidence because I know the righteous standard that should damn me has damned another. The righteousness that I need has been supplied. That is the confidence that we have. And so what a wondrous mystery that magnifies the wisdom and the mercy of God. The same righteous judgment that it once it was my adversary, it now becomes my advocate. Praise the Lord for his wisdom and wonder. The righteous standard that I need, it's mine through the abundance of his steadfast love. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You'll find that in Psalm 85, because what it's testifying and giving us a window into seeing in our Old Testament is that the cross is where that has happened. It is there upon the cross that steadfast love and faithfulness meet. God is righteous. He abhors bloodlust and every form of wickedness, and he is full of steadfast love. And there at the cross, they've kissed. They've met. Righteousness satisfied. Mercy poured out. Christian, pour out your heart before him. Plead your griefs. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He is a merciful God. And if you have never done that, if you've never come to God in this sort of honesty, recognizing, I know he's holy, I know he's just, and my life testifies that I'm a lawbreaker, 
then come to him as a lawbreaker. Come to him as a guilty one. Come to him in the admission of guilt and pleading the mercy that's found in Christ. Because what he promises is that all who come to him in faith will not be cast out. That he extends steadfast mercy. He is holy and he is merciful. Praise the Lord that the assurance of our faith, it's not anchored to feelings, nor even anchored to a version of God that speaks only of his love. Mercy is ours because justice has been satisfied. Assurance is this great confidence that God is now my refuge. Assurance means that he is my protection, my shield. And it's through this assurance that we have this confidence that we are justified, that we're actually adopted into his family. Through faith in him, we will be kept for all eternity because his mercy is forever. And so this sort of assurance that we're talking about here, this is really critical, especially if you've grown up in the church. Because this sort of mercy moves us beyond just knowing the facts about the gospel to then knowing that this fact applies to me. This testimony of what God has done is mine. That's the sort of assurance we're talking about. And this is grounded in the justice and mercy of God, producing this freedom from guilt, this joy in God, this sense of belonging to his people because of what he's done. This is the sort of confidence that's marked by the fruits of fellowship with God, a childlike dependence upon him. And so when somebody asks you, are you sure? Are you really sure that God hears you? You talk about this God who is the judge and he's going to return again. Why are you so sure he's not going to judge you? And you say, let me tell you about the steadfast love of God. Let me tell you about his justice and full admission of what I deserve. And let me then tell you about his mercy and full assurance of what I've been given. David, in his need, seeks his God. And what he's confident of is that God is a God of steadfast love abundant in mercy. All of this is extended and lavished upon God's people through the abundance of who God is because he is mercy. He is steadfast love. Father, we rejoice to hear such good news in light of such horrible news. The news that we know about ourselves, but yet in great confidence of hearing what you have proclaimed through your word this morning. Father, we ask that you would move us beyond the mere sense of peace through the silencing or the muzzling of our conscience, but that you would move us into the full sense of peace by a renewed conscience through the washing of Christ's blood, through the assurance of what we've been given in his death and resurrection. Lord, help us to be those who cling tightly and love to affirm your holiness and your justice, not wincing one bit or relinquishing our grip upon those great truths. And let us also be those who latch on with full force and cling to the great revelation that you are God of mercy. Lord, grow us in our depth and our understanding of both of those truths to see who you are, that we might make sense of our world and ourselves 
that you might continue to conform us to the image of your Son, that you might continue to give us this full assurance of faith, the great surety that we need even in difficult days and seasons of affliction and trial. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.